This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Vamping for Time. Hoska Castle. Sarah Richardson. And Albert de Roja. Cogs and Commissars is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to check out immediately. For the motherboard. To promote the game's release and support friendly local game stores, Atlas Games has a special promotion. If you buy Cogs and Commissars at Brick and Mortar Game Store and send selfie to Atlas, they mail you special Neon Botsky promo card. Botsky joins existing faction leaders like Simulenin, Gorobachev, and the Artificial Style Intelligence. And not a moment too soon. Buy Cogs and Commissars at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash Botsky. That's Botsky with a Y. Or follow link in show notes. Remember, the revolution will be mechanized. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the smell of freshly opened pizza, the sound of excited sitting down to play, the rustle of character sheets, the search for pens and pencils, the discussion about what happened last time, the uh, <laughs> arguments about what happened last time, the lengthy discussion about whether or not the person who's normally supposed to be here is going to make it in time to get dinner. Did we order dinner? Oh, that's right. We ordered pizza oh, a wait, while back. Wait, have we, have we talked about pop culture references yet, Ken? No, we have not, but speaking of pop culture references, 20 minutes. how about that Daredevil? What a show. Goodness me, I could go on and on. Uh, but Peter Frampton is beginning to look concerned. He's coming alive, but no one has uh, has set him up as a GM screen. Oh, that's right, because here in the gaming hut, we're vamping for time while the GM figures out what to do. Robin, you must have experience figuring out what to do because your players are a darned, uh, what do I want to say, idiosyncratic bunch sometimes? Oh, they, they might cock to that. So uh, I thought what we were talk about today is... Uh, uh, let's say, for example, that you are playing a game that has a uh, somewhat involved uh, combat system, which could be anything from any flavor of D&D to Champions or RuneQuest or what have you, and you're coming up on uh, on the end of the session, but there's still about 10, 20 minutes left. You know that if a fight happens, that's going to take more than 20 minutes. You can't do that. So, what do you do in the intervening time? Since uh, uh, you could call it early, but you know, it seems like your players are hankering to uh, to do something and advance the plot line. Uh, what do you do? How do you vamp for time? How do you insert things into the game that are uh, fun to interact with, but keep the uh, the thing that's coming up on the horizon safely on the horizon? Uh, other examples of reasons you might want to vamp for time, for example, uh, you may be coming up on a plot development that requires a player who isn't here this week or has had to leave early. There's all sorts of um, reasons why um, you may have zipped through in the course of a, a convention scenario. You may have, uh, your players may have efficiently gotten through three hours of the adventure in a mere hour. 
and uh, you don't want them to uh, have a truncated session. All kinds of reasons to do this. So how do we do this? How do you insert things into the game to sort of space it out? The more typical pacing problem, of course, is the opposite one of trying to, uh, you know, race to the end of a scenario after they take three hours to get through one hour of the adventure. So, Ken, uh, you're a... a uh, also will run a game where you're not looking for a particular conclusion to happen at the end of every session. So I imagine you also have times when you uh, want to stick something in there that you hadn't planned to. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times uh, it's because the players have gone in a direction uh, or sent the game in a direction that you have not necessarily prepared a suitable response to. And so you need to extend before you can come down on maybe one of two excellent alternatives or before you can, you know, Remember which NPC has been triggered by this action and needs to begin their response. Right, they're going to the Hoover Dam. I, I, I bet there's really great things to research about the Hoover exactly. Dam. Exactly, there are. It's a fascinating. But I can't research them at the moment. So not at the table. They'd catch me. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, you can, and you can often kind of half do your research, but uh, again, we're stalling for time before we get to practical. Uh, Solution. So one thing to do, um, this is easier to do in sort of a sandboxy game than in a uh, mystery or something where the players expect it to be very contained, you know, everything to all add up at the end. But you can always just throw in that good old classic, uh, the random encounter and not the a random fight and encounter because it may well be that a fight is the thing you're trying to, del- uh, you know, not have. Uh, but you can have uh, someone show up to interact with who has some sort of side agenda with the group or uh, no particular agenda at all on your part, just some sort of interesting, weird, memorable character that they can talk to uh, that will define uh, who they are and the way they approach uh, weirdos they meet on the road. And, uh, of course, the thing about role-playing is that something that you don't intend to mean anything uh, can acquire meaning if the player sees on that uh, character as interesting and want to go back and talk to them or consider them a source of information or a patron. And so the players can then wind up making something that you've uh, just sort of randomly thrown in there uh, into something that pays off later on without your having to know right ahead of time exactly, well, you know, what role that character is going to play. So just sort of a an interesting, memorable, eccentric character whose agenda has nothing to do with theirs uh, can show up and uh, approach them. And uh, uh, because the thing about Fan Frame for Time, of course, is that you don't want your players to think you're doing it. Uh, you don't want them to, to see you rustling behind the curtain. But, of course, players have a way of projecting things onto what it is that you're doing. And, of course, naturally, they will assume that you have uh, big plans for the intelligent dinosaur they run into in the ruins or the uh, weird uh, reporter guy uh, sitting in his car uh, making uh, notes in Cyrillic, for example. The, I mean, I guess we were sort of danced around from the fact that if you can do a fight, that is the best way to vamp for time, uh, no matter how long a fight takes, because time stretches out from the perception of the player characters. You've got, uh, you know, lots of little decisions to make at the moment that don't affect the big decision of what's going to happen next. So uh, that's why Robin began this segment with, let's assume you can't run a fight because fight is the answer to how do you vent for time failing that. Right. And that's a function of the 
how much time a fight takes in your rule set, basically. Right. But it always takes more time than not fight. Yes. The the other thing that you can do is, uh, r- rather than a random encounter, you can have a callback. Uh, think of a player who hasn't had a lot of spotlight, ideally, uh, this session. Think of something in their character's past tied to something that they want. Have that manifest itself. So it's the sort of thing that will draw player attention. They'll do something with it. It's not immediately relevant to the decision they made, even if it's like, so you've decided to go to Hoover, Hoover Dam, but it's at that moment that uh, Alexandra's phone rings. Oh, my goodness, it's her Aunt Becky who's uh, come back from Alaska, and she says she must talk to her urgently. And it's like, well, I know we wanted to go to the Hoover Dam, but Aunt Becky's paying the tab on all these occult investigations, so we'd better go talk to Aunt Becky and find out what's going on in Alaska. And that way you're signaling, you don't have to go to Alaska, but this is a, an information dump that your character is going to want. And maybe it gives you a little, uh, uh, character play between Alexandra's player and, uh, the Aunt Becky character, who of course is a, blo- is a lovely eccentric in the fine tradition of elderly ants in uh, fiction forever. And another, uh, thing that you can have happen is someone seeks them out. So it's not just an absolutely random encounter, but someone introduces a minor, uh, new hurdle that they have to uh, get over. So, you know, the, a uh, reporter can come up to them and say, well, I've been following you for a little while, and uh, aren't you Jim Bob McGraw, and uh, didn't you uh, uh, shoot that guy in Reno just to uh, watch him die, and uh, could you comment on this? And and then that is still about what it is that they're doing, but it, and it seems like the world is reacting to them and coming back on them, but it's not something that you're planning to have as, uh, you know, a giant obstacle. It's one that they can uh, deal with, Conveniently in the amount of space that you're trying to fill. Exactly. And, uh, and therefore, uh, but it feels like then what they're doing in the world is, is, is having an impact and, and that they have to think about more than, uh, what it is that they're dealing with. So it's not a, a main obstacle, but it's a sort of a, a side obstacle that nonetheless reflects something about them and perhaps gives them an easy win. So that if the, uh, the nosy reporter, is nosy but relatively easy to deal with, uh, that will then uh, make the players uh, feel, especially if they've been getting pummeled lately, that they're, you know, in control and have the sort of mastery that uh, ultra-competent adventure characters uh, typically do. Uh, And that can be, you know, anything from uh, the authorities to sort of a quasi-authority like a reporter, or it can be, uh, you know, the annoying salesman character who's like, oh, I noticed that your vehicle there is... uh, uh, running a little slow. Uh, uh, would you like to head down for uh, a special process that I've got? And it can be something also tempting. Uh, that's another thing that players respond to, especially in a sandbox game, is some sort of minor interaction that can give them a, a reward of some kind. And it can either be, you know, it could be someone saying, "Well, I'm I'm glad that you took care of those uh, goblins, and uh, come on down to my magic item shop." And uh, you want to look at some things, and I, I feel like I owe you a gift. So that that gives them a choice, uh, and often a choice between a bunch of good options is an underused uh, device in role-playing, and one that can, uh, because it's hard, <laughs> can take up lots of time. And, and uh, another idea is something that will spark a, a discussion or, uh, you know, tactical decision making uh-huh. between members of the party that takes up loads of time, yeah. in which you can yes. carefully bring up that Hoover Dam Wikipedia page. So give them something, have something happen that gives them something to talk about. And that will, uh, 
give you uh, not only your next 20 minutes, uh, but also give you some breathing room to think and figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, the um, uh, the uh, that's terrific. Hoover Dam. What are you going to bring to Hoover Dam? Is It will solve half your problems right there, unless you <laughs> are in a game with a preparedness stat, Robin D. Laws. Thank you very much. Uh, well, the thing is, because uh, normally, of course, we want to get uh, uh, rid of these uh, problems. So uh, it could be there. Uh, you, you know, the, the way to handle that in game with preparedness is you just, you go to your car and it turns out, oh, th- the trunk has been popped and someone has grabbed your go bag. <laughs> and, uh, so that can be, that can lead to hunt down the guy who's stolen your, um, your equipment or, uh, explain how you're going to replace all your equipment before you get to the Hoover Dam. And, uh, uh, I think A in that case is more fun. So what, yeah. I guess another thing is when you're thinking about how to vamp, uh, remember that you're not just trying to annoyingly draw things out, but you're trying to come up with a fun way for the players to do something in that space. You're not just trying to hide the fact that you uh, don't have uh, stat blocks for the characters they have to fight. So uh, another way to, to think your way through this is to think of all of the characters, not just their backstories, as you mentioned before, but the cool things that they do, and maybe look at their character sheets and look for an underutilized uh, ability that, uh, you know, you can tell that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Janie wants to use her spirit talking uh, ability again, uh, and you need uh, to fill 20 minutes. Guess what? She sees some spirits off on the horizon, and that gives her the chance to go talk to them, and the spirits then say, well, I can grant, uh, one of you a special luck blessing, and you can decide who gets the luck blessing. And mm. th- then again, there's Hoover Dam right in front of you. Yeah, the um, uh, the 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 choice of how to you know uh, if you're in a uh, F20 game, uh, you can say, well, I think that you guys that last encounter was pretty good. I think you guys can take an increment, and then everyone has to pick a feat. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, make them do paperwork is always right. a, uh, a well. They want to do that paperwork because they yeah. they're eager to get an increment if you've been uh, parceling them out uh, with a with a reluctant hand um, as well. You might. Um, yeah, another possibility besides, uh, something outside the world, something inside the world happening, you can have a omen or other thing. You can say, right, you're on the way to Hoover Dam and here are the sort of omens and strange developments between here and there. So you do a road movie encounter, uh, that is connected to what's going to happen in Hoover Dam, which you don't know for sure, but you know, vaguely, maybe it'll have the necromancer in it, or maybe it'll have this. And so even if it doesn't have the necromancer in it, the necromancer sends an apparition to go, Whoa, turn back. And so they have to dicker with the necromancer's apparition. Um, then even if the time you've decided, Nope, Hoover Dam has nothing to do with the necromancer. You can say, but why did the necromancer want to stop them from getting to Hoover Dam? Or did he, was he doing a double bluff where he knew that if he sent an apparition, they'd really go to Hoover Dam and then he could go off and do his own thing. And you've involved some other part of the, of the, of the campaign in it, or you foreshadowed your eventual decision, uh, because an apparition by its very nature is kind of vague. Right. And so, uh, it's something for them to interact with that again doesn't require the resort to the combat system or, uh, and something that they can go and ask. Uh, another thing to think about is, uh, something that will cause the players to ask questions and uh, try and figure out what's going on. So, uh, you know, any even sort of a little minor manifestation, uh, you know, you see a strange uh, ripple ahead. And that's always, you know, good foreshadowing uh, that uh, or, you know, oh, you suddenly find that you're uh, another 
sort of more obvious way to sort of put a, a lampshade on the, the fact that you're dealing with a, a time issue is you can suddenly have them jump ahead and it's like, oh, you've uh, suddenly you're all uh, you all have headaches and you're in a, a weird hotel in, in Reno, Nevada, and you don't know how you got there. And so uh, that's a case where you're going to want to tie that, find a reason why that happened as they decided to go to Hoover Dam. But it could be that you know, you're not the only powerful entity as, as Game Master that wants to delay their progress toward Hoover Dam. So you could ask yourself, who would try and get in the way of uh, of what their goal is so that uh, once they overcome that obstacle, they then feel that they're closer to the uh, whatever the situation is because, oh, well, we figured out who cast the the time dilation spell on us. And, uh, and obviously it's the Necromets or Hoover Dam. And now we know more about that. So now when we show up at Hoover Dam, uh, you know, felt like we'd been sidetracked, but now we're actually ahead of the game and we have a, uh, you know, we know the true name of the, the Necromets or something. So that you're, uh, another way to look at it then is to think, well, what, what are they going to really want when they get to the place? Can I create an, an intermediate scene? in which the, the contest is the question, the obstacle is, do I get that thing or not? And so that way it'll feel like it's all part of the plot, even though you're also trying to move that big next scene down the road a bit. And uh, speaking of time, I think we've uh, spent enough time on this segment and can uh, carefully research uh, Hoover Dam uh, while we're listening to this next commercial and then see whatever's on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's time for that most elegantly designed of huts, the one with the best support beams, the most beautiful vaulting. Yes, indeed, it is once again the architecture hut. And uh, Ken, uh, this week at the behest of uh, Patreon backer Darren Hennessy, uh, we're going to talk about a building, just a, a totally plain 
ordinary, you know, there's some history to it, but just just a regular old building, right, Ken? Regular building like you might find in your medieval encounter of any kind. Just going to be there, going to be built by some medieval dudes. Just Nothing a weird about it. And and that building is Huska Castle in Abuache, Czechia, the Czech Republic. And uh, this is a, a castle. is built uh, in the second half of the 13th century, so it starts off. And it, it has sort of the life cycle of a lot of European castles in that it, uh, over time, uh, has a series of renovations and people changing it. And, you know, the idea of architects going, oh, we're just going to keep the facade is not new. <laughs> and uh, so so this was built, uh, uh, first of all, though, uh, probably on the order of the Bohemian ruler, Ottokar II. Uh, do you know anything about Ottokar? Uh, Ottokar II is famous uh, in our uh, little circle because Ottokar is the only time in history when Bohemia has a seacoast. So if you're trying to get a period when you can have the Winter's Tale be real, it has to be during the reign of Ottokar because he combined in his persona uh, the the leadership not just of Bohemia but of a bunch of little other countries that sort of stretch all the way down to basically to Trieste and that neck of the woods. So that's your Winter's Tale is happening during the reign of Ottokar. Other than that, he's a big important guy in the Holy Roman Empire during which, uh, you know, as, as one can imagine, uh, that lasts until Ottokar dies and then the whole, the, the whole, uh, rest of his empire falls apart. He, he dies and takes the seacoast with him. Exactly. His, his seacoast goes away. They got taken away in a battle against Rudolf Habsburg, uh, who, as, from his last name, you can guess who gets to be Holy Roman Emperors ever after. <laughs> um, and it's not Ottokars or Presmalids, I believe, is what his, um, uh, his dynasty would have been. Um, and imagine the Presmalid lip could have been a thing if it hadn't been for, uh, Ottokar getting thumped at that final, uh, battle in, uh, Marchfeld. Uh, but that's the end of the Presmalid dynasty as a going concern for the, uh, Holy Roman Empire. Anyway, I suppose one of them stayed a, an elector for a while, but that, you know, once the Habsburgs have got their gimlet eye on you, you might as well sign it off. That's what we know about Ottokar. It's not much, but there we have it. And that explains what then happens to the castle in mm -hmm. that, uh, for hundreds of years, it just keeps changing hands between various uh, aristocrats because it's no longer a seat of power that according to uh, real history uh, that the castle was created as an administrative center. Uh, perhaps later on in the segment, when we get into the crazy history, there will be claims that there's no reason for this castle to be there at all. But dun, dun, dun. but I think it was there as an administrative, it was yeah. an office building, yeah. basically, with, with fortifications, as as one needed in one's office. Given that the Habsburgs are gunning for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, the Renaissance comes along, uh, 1584 to 90. As the Renaissance was wont to do, they they fixed it up and they uh, made it look much more Renaissancey than uh, than Gothic. That's why when you look at pictures of it on the you know on, on the web, it does not have any real Gothic features. It's got the the sort of the nice Italianate roof and the rest of it. So of course uh, the the building continues to go through uh, cycles of uh, of use and disuse. So. Uh, by the 18th century, it's it's fallen back into disrepair because uh, castles in the middle of nowhere, when you don't need them to uh, defend against uh, other armies, uh, they're expensive to maintain and not they're cold and drafty. And so there's a another uh, reno in that another great renovating era in the early 19th century in 1823. 
1897, uh, the Princess Hohenlohe uh, purchases it. And uh, so, uh, regular building, right, Ken? Yeah. Nothing, nothing weird. Simple, happened. simple Austrian, then uh, or Bohemian, then Austrian, then Bohemian again building. Not a problem. Uh, run yeah. by the president of uh, Czechoslovakia in uh, 1924. Um, set up just as a as a fine country retreat where you can go and be away from the cares and worries of everyday life. Right, Robin? Right. But then the dark stuff happens, or at least the rumors of the dark stuff start to happen. So um, uh, Wikipedia claims uh, that uh, during World War II, the Germans used it to perform inhumane experiments on local people or prisoners of war. And it's the presence of or <laughs> that sounds... Uh, like we're, uh, has this been affirmed? Is this a, a true fact? Or? I, I did, uh, some research. I cannot say that I did super extensive research, but I did some research and I was not able to find any reference of Huska Castle, uh, or Hauska Castle, as it was called then, because it was German, um, uh, was used in, uh, in, in that way. I mean, plenty of other castles, a uh, Dachau Castle, perhaps most famously, but lots of other castles get turned into uh, experimental centers by one or another part of the Nazi murder machine. But, uh, Hauske Castle was actually used as a storage place for the libraries that they looted from Masonic temples and from, uh, Jewish synagogues all over Europe. So the Reich Amt 7 office of the RSHA, which was the office in charge of collecting up all the books from ideological enemies of the Reich, uh, used Hauske Castle for storage. So, it does have Himmler's magic library, or maybe yes. not. <laughs> yes. You, when the when the characters show up near the castle, one person tells them the legend of the inhumane experiments, and the other says the library, and then you start thinking, what books were in that library? Because, uh, yes, it turns out that all sorts of uh, weird and, and grim and horrible tales attend to uh, Hauske Castle. So, uh, most notably, the chapel is said to be conveniently placed uh, on top of a gateway to hell. And uh, now, if you know that there's a gateway to hell where you're building a castle, I think it stands to reason that the thing you put there is a chapel. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a standard sealant. Yes. Yeah. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put like the, you know, um, uh, the throne room there. <laughs> no, uh, because a, a, a chapel has demon repellent powers. That's yes. uh, the number one purpose of a chapel. Yeah. Literally the point. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and you, as you point out, you don't, you don't want them coming up, uh, through your, your chair. And, and so legendary, uh, attends the construction of, of this castle. And, uh, so as the implausible story goes, uh, prisoners were used to build the building. Their, their labor was, was forced, uh, because of course you can't, you know, you don't actually have. No one's going to volunteer to build something over a gate to hell before the consecration has happened. Exactly. Yes. That's just bad. Right. And uh, apparently also the, an, an integral part of building the castle was to take the prisoners and offer them freedom if they uh, agreed to be lowered down on a rope so, to see just how far the abyss that they were building this castle on went. And, of course, uh, prisoners stepped up. And uh, I think we know why the story has them as prisoners, because it, that explains why they're agreeing to do this and they're they're lowered down and they're lowered back up and and the you a, a young man is lowered down into the pit and an old white-haired man uh trembling in terror comes out of the pit 
And after uh, a great deal of screaming. Yes, there's much screaming. And uh I don't think they provide a lot of information about what they saw in the pit. No, because he's he's um uh, he's too uh, shocked and baffled. Right. We should say that uh animal human hybrids were seen in the area by the people who uh were either covering up a pit to hell or making up pit to hell stories, uh including a headless horse. Not a headless horseman. Anyone can have a headless horseman. This is a headless horse, which is just creepy as heck if you think about it. And uh, something that one gloriously badly uh, uh, referenced website calls a giant bulldog slash frog slash human, which is exactly right as far as I'm concerned. Frog humans, you're like, okay, deep ones, got it, been there. Even bulldog humans, you'd say, all right, that's kind of iffy, but that's a demon-y thing. I get that. Bulldog frog human. Now you're like, hold on, wait, how does that work? And the more you think about it, the less it you takes like it. Three ingredients to make a proper sorcerer's hybrid. Everybody knows that. All we know is that it, it has a smile that is probably very pronounced, but maybe not infectious in the good way. And then also there's like an, a woman in a dress who just haunts the castle like a normal person would haunt a castle. Um, and right. is probably just brought in from a different castle, you know, by some sort of Czech government, um, uh, ghost rationing policy. Uh, but there's also dark winged otherworldly creatures. So yep. it sounds like there's night gods. Yep. Or Bjaki. Uh, yep. So, uh, you have all of the makings here of your classic, uh, you know, it, it get to hell explains a lot. It does. And you have the idea that you you can play with the idea of the f- uh, forbidden uh, Nazi medical experiments. Perhaps they were creating human-animal hybrids. Perhaps they went there, uh, you know, knowing there was a gate to hell and that would uh, change the uh, uh, physical dynamics of their experiments. And so perhaps they're uh, trying to recreate legendary uh, hybrids and uh, are creating them, uh, even though there's legends already, that they're really the ones who are responsible for them, or... Uh, just that all of all sorts of manners of horrible things have, have attended to the castle over the years as uh, the, the emanations of the gate to hell have uh, spread through the region. D- do we even need more of a plot hook than uh, you're going to a weird castle where yeah, there it's are a legends. gate to hell yes. and that someone built a castle on it? I mean, you can uh, you look at the uh, there is a, a chamber with some cool paintings on it, including a painting of a sort of a centaur looking guy. Uh, and everyone on the website is like, oh, they wouldn't have painted centaurs. It's like, yeah, they would. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you can look at those paintings online and uh, make up your own cool stories. Something that is described as a, a green chap a green chamber. So even if uh, the, it's just a green chamber because that's the primary color of the backdrop of the paintings, you can sort of uh, say, ooh, great God Pan type feelings or um, uh, the man with green gloves sort of mysticism is going on there. Something something magical and green, not something just like, well, you got to use a color. Let's call it green. Um, plus, if it's uh, administering hunting estates and, or, and agricultural estates, green would be a natural color to use in the color scheme in the first place. But you can make the green chamber seem more magical when you put capitals on it like that. So the, your reason to get to the capital, uh, pr- the, probably the... Uh, sort of more, uh, mundane, ironic version would be that, uh, an EU, uh, heritage site team has disappeared and you're sent in and you as the occult investigators know that, that something's gone terribly wrong and, uh, uh, you know pretty well that, uh, if you know there's a gateway to hell, you know the characters are gonna have to find and lower themselves down into that, uh, chamber. You might do a fun switcheroo where 
the uh, entry to the abyss is not in the chapel, but turns out to be uh, somewhere else. In the green room. Yes, the green room. Uh, and uh, you got to look where the where the centaur's club is pointed and, and find that uh, that gateway to hell. Or it could be that the players that you've already given them a reason to need to uh, scour hell, and they need an entry point into hell. So and that's the most uh, convenient one. Yeah, or uh, you know, into Carcosa or, or whatever. So uh, you know, there's no better way to the uh, creepy otherworld realm uh, than through a a big old uh, gothic, then Renaissance, then uh, Regency castle. Uh, so I think we've uh, given everybody motivation to head on out to the, to Chechia to uh, check out Houska Castle, and we can move on to our next segment. historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game. Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast from running out of time. Joining such Patreon backers as... James Stewart. Paul and Cleo Bushland. Johan Alston. Rob Towell. And Urs Blumentritt. Hey, welcome once more to Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today, Ken and Robin, that's us, are talking to Sarah Richardson, game designer extraordinaire, artist of the high arts, terrific human being, fellow Chicagoan, uh, and designer most recently, I guess, of Velvet Glove, but also one of the designers of Bluebeard's Bride, which is game breaker in a lot of ways. It's kind of a legendary uh, thing in the sort of um, uh, psychological horror space, I guess you'd call it. And then also a amazingly good GM, in addition to her other <laughs> fine qualities, and easily the second best uh, chili cook in this room. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Although I haven't had Robin's chili, so, you know, um. whatever. Um, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, for those who are not privileged to play it, what's the pitch for Velvet Glove, obviously a, a great name like that can go any number of directions. What's the direction that you have chosen? Uh, Velvet Glove is a Powered by the Apocalypse World game in which you play a gang of teenage girls. Uh, it takes place during the 1970s in America, 
and really uh, one of uh, our friends described it as Dungeons and Dragons, but the patriarchy is the dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of sex, drugs, and violence. That is true. This is no. Uh, I played, uh, I don't know how early it was. Was it an alpha, a beta? An earlier version of Velvet Glove at New Mexicon mm-hmm. uh, last year, not even this year. And it was already a beautiful, fully formed uh, sort of Russ Meyer via the Valerie Solanus, I guess, is the way that I would put it. Um, that is very flattering and is totally what I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was a great game. Sarah's a great GM. It is one of those sort of settings and concepts that naturally produces trouble in the way that I think a good Powered by the Apocalypse setting needs to for that engine to really sort of shine. Can you talk a little bit about the sorts of uh, things that are in that setting that are going to create problems and uh, opportunities for, uh, you know, fighting the man? (laughs) Definitely. So one reason I chose the 70s is because it is a powder keg of uh, racial and uh, gender relations, you know, getting to that peak where people were really angry. Unlike now. Well, <laughs> it's it's like a mirrored reflection of what's going on now, right? Right. Um, so it's, it's uniquely situated that um, you're playing these poor girls of color for the most part, and their stories are underrepresented. They're not told enough. But if you're a poor girl in the 70s, your opportunities are limited. And everybody is kind of, you know, you don't have anyone to help you for a lot. So that's why the game is centered around the idea of a gang, so that you have each other to help uh, and kind of survive in a world that's really set against you. So 70s, you have all these colorful characters. You have the fashion. uh, Because, of course, making your your girl for the gang, it's important what they look like. Yes. Um, and then, you know, there's perhaps a different access to drugs than you might have today, and different drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I was a little young in the 70s, but my remember, my memory <laughs> is that some people I knew had access. True. Right. And, there's always someone who has yeah, access. Right, yeah. Um, and they're in high school, so they're, they're definitely of an age where they're not adults and people aren't taking them seriously in that way, but they're still old enough to get into serious trouble. I mean, one of the things, though, in our... I mean, it, it sounds sort of dystopian and bad, and it, it was the 70s, so fair enough, but in our game, at least, the, along all of those negatives and all of that uh, institutional oppression and uh, rage was also a sort of anarchic, beautiful freedom. Yes. That existed. And that's very 70s culture. Obviously, the 70s reality was uh, did not live up to the beautiful <laughs> dream of uh, setting everything on fire. But the, the gameplay itself, the experience, is not some sort of grim Orwellian grind. Right. It's grindhouse. It's not grind, right? And so the, 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 the sort of the dazed and confused with Molotovs is sort of more <laughs> the flavor that we had a little bit, right? Because there's the, yes. that element to it as well. It's not just a, a one note of grimness. Right. Like, and that, that comes through in every time I've run it is that by choosing to be in a gang, by owning themselves, these girls get the, the opportunity to, to just act out and do what they feel is best for them. So it's kind of a revenge fantasy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's beauty even in that kind of 
violence that female characters don't always get to participate right. in. But, I mean, as a male player, I get to participate in all the vicarious violence I've ever wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you note that when you have female players or players of color, people who may have not felt like they were societally permitted to be rageful uh, in the way that I would be, um, that they get that same sort of response, or is my response colored by my lack of color, I guess? <laughs> Um, I have had uh, female players who are so incredibly gleeful. They they are clearly just reveling in the like I said the revenge violence. Right. That clearly they're like I couldn't do this in real life, and I'm thinking about the guy who groped me on the subway last week, and yeah, I'm going to kick this guy in the teeth. Like <laughs> and also doing a line and setting a car on fire is something we can all, regardless yes. of race, creed, or color, get behind. Right. Yeah. Right. Like. Because the NPCs in Velvet Glove are, I'm trying to make them real, mm-hmm. but they're still a little bit of a caricature. Yeah, in but that, in that sort of heightened, dramatic yes. way, right? There's a, I mean, everything good and terrific about that sort of revenge fantasy. I mean, you could go back to like Jacobian revenge drama, and there's elements of that, or these characters are sort of realistic on the surface, and then you sort of peel them back and it's like, oh my god, <laughs> just the starkest Websterian horror is behind these guys. Yes. And admittedly, we all knew people like that in the 70s. We know some of them like that even today. So, I mean, again, I don't know how much of that is you at the table as a GM. I know a lot of it is inherent in the material and obviously even in the, in the stuff that we saw. And you're going to be able to put a lot of that into the text of the yes. game. Um, but, the, <laughs> but the sort of from a, a space that you wouldn't maybe not have immediately thought, well, that's going to be just full of nuggety good play in the way that the Lovecraftian New England of the 20s is full of nuggety good play. It's, it's A lot of that is the same depth of flavor that, uh, you know, you've, you found and, you, and, you've, and you're bringing it out, and that's just terrific. So obviously the current era did not invent radicalism and, and right. perspectives and understanding of disregarded groups. I was recently at a photo exhibit of uh, people's personal photos of their gay and lesbian experience in the late 60s and early 70s. And it became, there was a really interesting contrast because clearly the watchword of that era, the one word description of politics is liberation. And so obviously there's the liberating violence here and revenge yeah. and, and that, and in a fun way. Today, you could argue that the uh, watchword is safety. So how do you bridge uh, today's safety culture and making people feel uh, protected at, at the table while still indulging all of the uh, the, the bacchanal <laughs> to go all the way back to right, the original yeah. women ripping dudes' heads off. <laughs> uh, the how, literal how, OG. Yes, exactly. <laughs> how, how do you uh, uh, balance those two ends of the continuum? One thing I do, uh, and this is owes a lot to Bluebeard's Bride, is um, I do always play with an X card because I don't want anyone to be in the game and realize they're not having fun. Like, this right. is not supposed to be traumatic. This is not therapy. Yeah. We're supposed to be having fun. And I can definitely see there are elements, even at our game, which was, I think, pretty anodyne, all things put together, that I know people would not have been comfortable at that table doing those things that we got up to. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that that, that would, you'd sort of have to have one. It's like having a safety handle on a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially, like, everyone's limits are different, right? So that's really, that's just to help me. It's like, help me help you so you have a good time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I, I did have a because after one play test, I made a rule at the table: no era appropriate uh, racial or sexual slurs. Yeah. Because um, that's not fun for me. <laughs> I'm not sure that's fun. You know, like that's not fun. And that and that that one guy who's just playing his character. Yeah. Yeah. You're, how come you're only playing that part of your character? Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I think just being very clear with people upfront about what kind of game it is and what to expect uh, is all I all I can do. Because I have a, a open door policy in that if the game isn't fun for you, you can leave and you should leave. Because uh, players who stay despite not having a good time, they're not doing themselves a favor or anyone else at the table. So what do you do to get people in the headspace of 70s feminist revenge? So uh, other than sit them down and watch a Pam Greer movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, why not? Well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, other than the obvious thing to do. Yeah. Right. Um, for the most part, uh, I think the playbooks do a lot of that work. Um, so taking enough time with the character creation, uh, for example, one of the playbooks is The Radical, which is what Ken played. I did. <laughs> and as you start to pick different parts of the girls, so you you decide you know how old they are, and then you decide what their body looks like. Like, do they look like little girls, or do they look like women? And I, my hope is for, especially for people who are male-bodied, they start to realize, like, oh, these things are not connected I'm starting to get that is something that's going to come up in the game. Um, and then, like, the radical can choose to have pamphlets and propaganda that she gives out. Or a thigh holster with three custom knives. So, like, hopefully there's enough in the playbooks and the movies. Anarchy of the word, anarchy of the deed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that really help people do that. Plus, I normally start them out uh, with kind of a descriptive scene. Um, because right now I'm developing the the base setting, uh, so it takes place in Santa Lucia. So giving them the the base setting, making sure developing their relationships with each other, so they know uh, they have run into problems with men before, um, or their parents, and how that works out. So uh, often when you uh, design something and then first uh, start to run it for people, you encounter surprise of some kind. So what was the the big surprise? between what you had in your head as to what was going to happen at the table and what people did? Probably there were two things. The first surprise was the first time I ran it, I actually ran it in contemporary times. Mm. That was grim. (laughs) That was not fun. (laughs) Um, That's why it's like realizing you needed the distance of the 70s and the color and the hyper-realistic. So it surprised me. I was like, oh, so... If you if you put these girls in modern day and they have to go through like metal detectors to get into their school, that's a very different feel right. than you know. So the seventies are our Italy. Yes, <laughs> the, the place when everything horrible can happen and we can enjoy it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and then the bigger the bigger surprise was the first table, and it happened to be all women. How incredibly happy they were. And just the gleeful violence inflicted on a teacher. Like, they took it so much further than I thought they would. And at the end, they were, like, high-fiving each other. And just, it was like this bonding moment. It it really is a joyful game. (laughs) And I enjoy role-playing a lot. But I don't play for joy as much as I play for, you know, horror or for intellectual satiety or for sort of cleverness, other sorts of things. But... This was just straight up joy, <laughs> the, the, and and that's you know whatever the alchemical combo is, 
that was my response to it. It was the same as, I guess, that first table of yours. That sort of, you know, Beethoven's ninth at the end of <laughs> Clockwork Orange when we're back to smashing crap up. That's right. Right. So is there a Spotify playlist? <laughs> yes. So uh, it, it's out right now as an ash can, and we're going to do uh, the Kickstarter in the full game very, very soon. Um, and in the back, there is a mediography, uh, is how Magpie Games normally does its ash cans. And I listed a bunch of movies, like Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, and a bunch of albums. Uh, because I, the other part of it is it's like, it's not disco 70s. It's not like that 70s show. Um, I wanted to highlight that, you know, there were people of color and women making music during that time. And also it's more like metal and punk, like think more Black Sabbath, even though you have David Bowie. Right. Because Bowie. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, Bee Gees. But there's also funk and Grandmaster Flash, early hip hop. Yes. There's that part of it as well, right? It's not just we're not doing Donna Summer. God, I mean, and again, nothing against Donna Summer. Right. She's a princess, but it's a different scene. Well, and it might be more Donna Summer's Bad Girls album. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, but but a fan uh, went through and made a Spotify list of all of the music I listed, <laughs> <laughs> so you can actually find it and listen to it while you play. Now you've got a background in legitimate art. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, what, what caused your fall? <laughs> um, so I graduated with a degree in visual communication is what they call it. Um, but that's kind of a mix up of illustration and graphic design with a heavier emphasis actually on illustration. So, um, and you did sculpture for a while too. I right? did. Yeah. I did sculpture and performance art immediately out of high school, like a good art person would do. <laughs> and I was bad at it. <laughs> Did you so learn art speak? Yes. Yes. I try not to practice it as much now, but I definitely can. If you ever need to escape a gallery opening, you can. Right. You remain fluent. <laughs> yeah. Very fluent. Um, so, yeah. So, I uh, did illustration graphic design. And after I got my degree, I originally thought I would end up in some, like, fancy modern office with IMAX on every desk mm-hmm. doing, like... Advertising mock-ups and things like that. Um, and the job market was not good. And so I was like, I'm a freelance. Oh, look, these people need someone to draw monsters for them for, you know, their, their, uh, their game. I, I, I'm a gamer. I'm down with it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm here. Yep. So it was just a quick downward slide. You just got so good at drawing monsters <laughs> yes. that you were promoted to writing monsters. And laying out monsters. And laying out monsters. Yes, right. Um, so yeah. That is how it happened. It's just because since I've been a gamer whenever I was a little kid, I was like, oh, you mean I can work in this thing I like? Now, you did the book design for Bluebeard's Pride, right? I was one of the people. One of the people who did it. Um, I helped establish uh, some of the overall look. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Thomas Dini and Miguel uh, Angel Epinoza, I'm sorry, Miguel, for ruining your name, finished it up. Right. I mean, that, I, mean, I don't know how many people have seen it. Uh, it's... It's staggeringly good looking as a product, uh, and it's one of the things that uh, we have all sort of grown up in the day when you know we still all remember. We may have people right now who are going to go in the comments and say, "Well, back in the day when arguing memoir was uh, typed out with a courier font and they just drew a troll and stapled it, and I only had to pay a nickel. That was role playing game. Get out of font. Why are you arguing? I don't need it. I don't need a lot of color art." 
But um, as a result, perhaps, of this settler effect, even the nicest looking of our games, by and large, look like really cool textbooks in a hip topic. They don't look like a thing that you want to use at the table. Every, every so often you get a, um, a Red and Pleasant Land or you get a, um, a, a, a Tales from the Loop or you get something that has a sense, or Fallout Delta Green, thank God, you get a, a, something that has a sense of a whole book design that when you put it next to a regular book, it's like the other book just sort of dries up and flies away. Is that something that you're looking forward to that from now on all Sarah Richardson products are going to look like something that was made by someone who actually understands book design and wants to make a thing that looks like a thing you would show to other people? Is that a, is that a goal or is that just a happy thing if you can afford it, but the real meat is the play and the, and the words and the, and the troll? That's, that's actually more complicated than I thought because it is very important to me that um, the books are beautiful because mm-hmm. in addition to the illustration and graphic design, uh, I also do book binding, <laughs> so I physically make books. To me, the form and the information design of gaming books should actually reflect the content. And what you're talking about, that disconnect, is whenever the content does not meet that um, so I know for me it's important enough that the design and the, the physical object meet that, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd probably overcommit myself and do something dumb and take a pay cut rather than put out an ugly book. <laughs> but hopefully what happens is that then because that book has a value simply as an object even before you open it up, that will get more people to pick it up, right? Isn't that sort of the goal? Yeah, like you cannot underestimate. We've all looked at books and been like, that's just so beautiful, I have to pick it up and look at it. Yeah. Or if you haven't, you're a monster, I don't know who you are. Yeah, you're um, dead to us. <laughs> so for me, there there is an artistry in the physical object that, that is important. Although the experience at the table is... Is it's pretty. I'm, well, obviously, it's at least equal important. I mean, and when we had our experience with Velvet Glove, that yeah. was out of a mimeographed bunch of pamphlets because that's <laughs> what the game existed as was was a text document that you slapped together some uh, some playbooks and we just put on a show in the barn. Yeah, well, and, I'm I'm already picturing this incredibly uh, beautiful book that will be out uh, uh, later this year, and uh, we'll try and arrange it so that. People are actually listening to this closer to when you're uh, kickstarting. Oh, thank you. Um, so, uh, thank you so much. And uh, where, other than your Kickstarter, should people find you? Uh, you can find uh, my game design work at magpiegames.com. Uh, you can find some of my personal work at scorcha.net, even though that is woefully out of date because I am an artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, stopping by. Thank you so much for having yeah, Sarah, me. Yes, Sarah, great to see you again. Nice seeing you. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set 
has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The weird theremin sounds echoing off the invisible corners of space-time, the sudden access of bluish fog, the call of the alien black cat, and the, re- and the reassuring appearance of the gray... Well, it's not that reassuring, but at least he's something from this reality. He's reassuring to us. He's our friend by now. Yes, right. He's, 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 he's practically the host, the, 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 the crypt keeper, if you will, the hut hound of uh, the Elliptony hut, because that's the hut we're in. When none of the other phenomena around it makes sense, we must be in the Elliptony hut, because that's where we put stuff. It's like the attic of our thought process and or our podcast. And in the attic, uh, we are going to talk about uh, crazy Greek experimental machinery and crazy French parapsychology. And we can talk about them in one man, one beautiful man, uh, Albert de Rochas. And Robin, since Albert de Rochas is French and is of the Belle Epoque, He's your he's your boy. Yes. So this is our, a part of our continuing series about uh, Bellapaka cultists, but this one is in the Elliptian Hut. I originally filed this one in uh, Consulting Occultist, but my ectoplasm meteor started to beep uh, because I'm sure uh, Alberto Rochas would uh, object to that uh, because he's, he's nothing science but science. Health. He's a damn engineer. He's a man of science. He's a pioneering parapsychologist. So going on with the thesis that uh, all the things that are happening today sort of uh, we're already in evidence by the Belle Epoque. Uh, he is uh, your uh, man of rationality who nonetheless comes to a number of elliptonic conclusions. Uh, and so he was he was a writer, uh, but most of his career was actually spent in the military. He was a, a military engineer, an expert on fortifications. He wrote about fortifications. And uh, by the time he uh, finished his military career, he was a lieutenant colonel. So, uh, you know, he... Uh, really rose up uh, through the ranks, and it was on the basis of that that he won the the Legion of Honor, not due to his uh, parapsychological uh, research, or so the story goes. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And so he is a, a great character for your Paris segment of, of the Yellow King to be a uh, a patron for the group. There's a, a bunch of the different uh, uh, historical figures are presented as uh, a possible patron who can give you missions if you your player group is a sort of group that likes to be given missions by the same character at, at the top of every uh, mystery. And uh, I think he makes a great example. He's, uh, you know, he's got a, uh, you can play him with his erect bearing and his uh, military uh, manner. And uh, he's got a fine upturned mustache. Uh, facial hair, of course, is uh, very big for uh, male uh, uh, NPCs in this era. And, uh, he uh, has a sort of no-nonsense rationalist approach, even when he's uh, believing in uh, things that we regard as uh, paranormal. And so that would also give you the fun opportunity to have him slowly 
go to seed over the course of the Paris segment as uh, he learns more and more about Carcosa. And you can sort of see in your patron, he, he can become sort of uh, in, in this uh, fictional version, uh, he can uh, start to really fall apart in real life. He didn't fall apart at all. He had, he was uh, sort of a combination of, uh, uh not just a, uh, a psychic researcher, but also kind of an, an, as a Isomov sort of figure who, uh, wrote a, a lot of, uh, different books. So. Although he did have to retire from the Ecole Polytechnique after he started writing most of his books about crazy stuff. Right. There, there may have been a bit of a distancing <laughs> as he learned about Carcosa. Mm-hmm. So his, his normaler books. Uh, still have all sorts of, uh, implications that could lead to plot hooks in your game. So, uh, he wrote, uh, a French translation of an 11th century Alexandrian, uh, treatise on fortification and machines of war. It's called Viterum Mathematicorum Opera. And, uh, he, uh, also studied, uh, ancient technology. And of course, uh, that can be all sorts of plot hooks. So, uh, things that he wrote about included like, uh, Hydraulic organs and water clocks and ancient surveying instruments, temple machinery. That, that certainly sounds, uh, like, uh, like a, a plot line. He could even, uh, you know, help you get to Houska Castle and, uh, have, have a visit to, uh, Czechoslovakia in the middle of your, uh, your game. Uh, he's an expert on Greek artillery and ancient railways, but that wasn't all. Uh, of course, uh, in his parapsychological mode, he looked into uh, telekinesis. Spirit photography, uh, magnetic emanations, past lives, and uh, and the odic force. He was the uh, major French figure who brought the uh, theory of uh, odic force uh, from uh, Baron Karl von Reichenbach in uh, Germany. And we've talked about that a bit before, but remind people what the what the odic force is. Uh, the odic force uh, is basically that force that transmits. Uh, the sort of these supernal energies. So it's the force that connects a hypnotist to his hypnotizer. It's what connects sleepwalkers to the moon. It's what, uh, perhaps powers dreams. Uh, uh, Baron Reichenbach didn't know. He was experimenting on all of these things and d- determined to his, to his satisfaction, at least, that if you put up some kinds of material between the moon and a sleepwalker, they didn't get up. And if you put other kinds, they did, which implied that there must be a force that's being transmitted because if it was some other factor, the intervening things wouldn't matter. So he then began work on, on hypnotism and basically decided the odd, as he called it, was a, a type of energy field similar to the ether. In, and in fact, it was similar to the ether and that it doesn't exist. But right. at the time, the odd, the ether was cool. And so was the odd. And that it would, um, uh, explain all of these, uh, factors because just as electricity turns out to be behind all kinds of other, uh, f- uh, phenomena from, uh, 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 heat to magnetism to all this other stuff. Uh, perhaps the odd is behind all these other wonderful things. And the odic force was, was very, very big, uh, for a while in 19th century Europe. It looks like from his bibliography that he starts down the road of the odic force by investigating what ancient, uh, the ancient Greeks believed about this stuff because he writes a book called, um, La science des philosophes et l'art de thaumaturge dans l'antiquité, which is just uh, what does magic and, uh, philosophical science look like in antiquity? And it turns out, yes, ancient Greeks, just like people all over everywhere, believe in nonsense. And so he, he lays that down and then he talks about the historical, uh, course of investigating this stuff. 
uh, still working as a historian, and then he stumbles on Baron Reichenbach, and Katie bar the door at that point. Then he does nothing but research uh, hypnotism for a while. Uh, his uh, most of his uh, really good uh, Hellenistic Greek research sort of uh, takes a left turn there. Although he, he continues to do it because he remains interested in both. But uh, you can look at the amount of his work. Uh, uh, on the topics of, um, uh, uh, of ancient Greek science, that sort of swaps out for, uh, Reichenbachian p- paranormality. Although he is at that time also translating all the work of Vauban, the great French military engineer. So one assumes that the whole thing is secondary to his habit of reconstructing 17th century, um, uh, engineering texts. And, uh, famously, he's one of the uh, parapsychologists who investigates the case of Eusapia Palladino. Uh, who I uh, did not uh, describe in uh, The Yellow King because she's not in Paris, uh, (laughs) but she's uh, the European superstar of spiritualism uh, near the end of the century. So can you give people a a quick background on on Eusapia Palladino? Because, of course, in your campaign, she might show up in Paris. Yeah. I mean, she, she, she certainly was itinerant in the sense that she would travel around to various places and put on big seance shows. Um, or invite really rich people to her seances. Um, she began as a peasant, um, was brought in by a, uh, by a family that sort of brought her up. And then she married, uh, a traveling conjurer and theatrical artist, which makes me automatically love this guy, Raphael <laughs> Del Guys and Del Guys. Um, uh, she sort of, he married her to get someone to manage his store, but then discovered, holy crap, um, uh, this, uh, could turn into a thing. That's, uh, that's also how, uh, Victoria Woodhall discovered her psychic powers by yes, marrying, marrying circus someone people. who is circus. <laughs> and so, um, uh, she begins performing herself. Uh, or exhibiting her, her psychical powers and becomes, as you say, a giant sensation. She travels around various parts of the world. Uh, she goes to Poland. Um, she goes, I'm sure she went to, uh, she went to Cambridge, England. She must have gone to Paris because good Lord, there were rich people there. Um, uh, and, uh, she was brought in to do a seance by, uh, psychical researchers in, uh, Ile Robot in the Mediterranean on the, uh, Cote d'Azur. And so if she's down there in 1894, she easily could have been brought back to um, uh, Paris. And in fact, in 1898, she's at the house of the great astronomer and paranormal joiner Camille Flammarion. Um, uh, and he obviously is living in Paris because, for gosh sakes, he's a um, uh, yes, he's, he's a famous person. He's not just living in Paris. He's living in a future installment of this uh, miniseries. Exactly. He's quite a guy. I love Camille Flammarion. Uh, a great deal. Uh, but anyway, um, he puts, he, he puts her up for this next bunch of studies. So the, the fact that it, it basically, if, if someone says we're going to investigate whether or not, um, uh, uh, paranormal powers are real. And then you start pestering Yuri Geller all the time. That's the same basic thing that's happening, uh, with, uh, the Paladino. She's the Yuri Geller of her era. Uh, the, the kids are of course saying, who the hell is Yuri <laughs> Geller? But I have no time for this. Um, the, uh, and, and so that's why the, she's getting publicity by being part of these investigations. And then that's why she puts up with it. And of course, there's no one easier to fool apparently than scientific investigators of the paranormal because, uh, uh as James Randi points out, if you're not a magician, you don't know how magic works, and this is all stage magic. Right. And uh, once again, yeah, as, as we're pointing out, everything that happened this century also happened in Belle Epoque. So uh, in, in 1895, <laughs> yep. actually, she's in 
in London going through a, a rigorous test of her, uh, and, she, uh, so, so she's a classic medium in doing table levitations and knocking. Yes, table levitations and, and, and spirit communication and, and the whole and It turns out that when you tie her up, uh, her ability to uh, levitate tables, uh, and, uh, and cause, uh, objects to move around the room sharply declines. In fairness, most of my abilities sharply decline true, if you tie yeah. me up. So I'm not going to say that disproves it. And, it, uh, it the, it. the James Randi of his era, uh, John Neville Maskelin, uh, was involved in the, a, uh, uh, investigation. And as a stage magician, he was onto her tricks. And so in, in fact, 1895, yep. the year that, uh, the Yellow King takes place is, the year where she is uh, substantially unmasked to anyone who's uh, not willing to make excuses for her. And of course, guess what? There still are people. Oh, yeah. I mean, her, her big American tour is, is in 1909, and she's still getting uh, giant crowds and people saying, I will investigate. Uh, and so she's still running the same grifts. So it, it does nothing. <laughs> Everything is plowing the ocean, Robin. All human yes. knowledge is futile. Uh, but uh, our, our character but. here is one of those who uh, who investigates her, so you can uh, bring uh, her into it, and uh, or uh, you know create a a fictionalized medium who shows up in Paris and uh, and starts uh, doing all of the the things that uh, Palladino has already been uh, exposed as as a mere uh, practitioner of Ledger Domain. But guess what? Our new character is infused with the powers of Carcosa, or perhaps. Uh, Eusapia herself has uh, has gone over to the side of Carcosa in order to wield. And after after that uh, debunking, yes, uh, disproves her. She's like, I'll show them. I'll get some real magic that works when I'm tied up, and finds the the powers of Carcosa. Uh, but at any rate, there's if you have uh, Alberto de Roja as your either just uh, a character that you know in the game, or as the one who's assigning you missions. There's a, a countless missions that he can uh, assign to you. Uh, so if you're not busy working for Sarah Bernhardt or uh, um, Madame Curie, you could be working for uh, Albert de Roja. So, and he uh, also can provide you with a fun kind of a clock punk sensibility because, of course, he's investigating Greek catapults yeah. and ancient Greek steam engines and things. So you can have all manner of alien piles that spin around and, and uh, you know, uh, catapults that show up. You know, if you need if you a have questions about Foucault's pendulum, right. uh, he's the guy to ask. Yeah. Well, uh, now that we've given you all sorts of ways to interact with uh, uh, Alberto Roja, I think that we can uh, declare this podcast complete and uh, uh, wave uh, goodbye to you through the electrons. Uh, but we will be back with even more electrons that carry sound into your ears next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Sample. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep the castle that is this podcast from crumbling alongside such Patreon backers as Jeff Cars, Jean-Francois Parody, Joshua Brumley, Michael Bowman, and Morgan Ellis. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new design. Cthulhu is woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.